Guys, it is an absolute joy to be at Discover Church today. Uh, thrilled to get, get to be here and so proud of Jernigan, so proud of all that God is doing here. Yeah, I never forget the time I met Jernigan for the very first time. He was a junior in high school, never met him before. He moved to town. And, you know, a big kid, tall. I thought, you know, I bet he can play some basketball. No. No. But God did something far better as a man of God, a preacher of the Word of God. Jernigan, I'm so proud of what you're doing here at Discover Church. Abundant Life is so thankful that we get to be a part of what God is doing in the Northland. And we're going to continue today in that same series you've been in, Kingdom Manifesto. If you have a copy of the Word of God today, we're in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 today. I love what you're doing on Sunday mornings through the summertime as you study the Sermon on the Mount. You guys, you're in for a treat, as Jernigan said, not because I'm here, Pastor Phil, but you're in for a treat because you're about to hear the greatest sermon ever preached. Best sermon ever, because it's not my sermon. I mean, this is like a dream, preaching Jesus' sermon. Yeah, you can't mess this up. I mean, it's the best sermon ever, ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount is what we're doing, and it is a kingdom manifesto. You might say this is uh, like the inaugural speech of Jesus the King as he's inviting them to come be a part of the kingdom. And this is Declaration Day, we might say, 2,000 years ago. July the 4th is our Declaration Day. And there was a manifesto of this new nation, a manifesto of the revolution. We call it the Declaration of Independence. You remember what it says? It says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, which among these are these, the rights of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That was in some way a manifesto of the revolution. And what you have here in Matthew 5 is a manifesto of another revolution. Jesus, a revolutionary. Jesus ushering in a kingdom that will last forever. Now, it's a kingdom that is both literal and physical as well as spiritual, and it's true that because Jesus was rejected by his own, it says in John 1, 14, he came into his own, but his own received him not temporarily. The physical kingdom has been withdrawn. There's coming a day that Jesus Christ is coming again. And it's going to be fulfillment of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is one day coming to the earth. And the kingdoms of this world are going to be one and the same with the kingdoms of our God. But in the meantime, the rule of God exists in our heart. The kingdom of God exists in our heart as those that have said yes to the king. And so the Sermon on the Mount gives us in some way the constitution of this kingdom. And what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 5 as we come to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is we're going to see that Jesus laid down the law so that we can lay down the law. And that's what he's doing here. He is laying down the law so that we can lay down the law. Uh, I'm going to date myself here, but I've been married for 30 years to Krista, and uh, I can honestly say we're more in love today than we were the day we got married, and you know you're more in love when, you know, you don't have to plan a big expensive date after 30 years, so our date night, Friday night, is sometimes watching, I'm I'm just going to say, you're going to think I'm goofy, you're going to think I'm weird, I don't care. Outdoor Channel has 
old westerns on Friday nights. I'm talking some of the classics, right? John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart. This past Friday night, it was Kevin Costner starring as Wyatt Earp. Tombstone, right? If you've seen the movie, you see where Wyatt Earp comes in. There's a new sheriff in town. He fires off a shot and he starts laying down the law because there is a new sheriff in town. You know what Jesus is doing here? He fires off a shot, a shot heard around the world. There's a new sheriff in town and he starts laying down the law. And what we're going to see is he laid down the law, check it out, so that we can lay down the law. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, read it with me, he says this, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. People are asking, what does this mean now for this covenant of the law? The Jews that are the audience of this greatest sermon ever are listening now to Jesus, and they're wondering what does this mean for everything we've ever known and we've lived by the law the Old Testament law is what is in view and there are over 600 commands in the Old Testament that was given to the Jews 600 laws that was given in the book of the law the Torah it means the law uh, the Greek word is Pentateuch it means the law it's the first five books of the Bible and that was what the Jews knew to do it's all they'd ever been taught to do and they're wondering now what does this mean for the law and what Jesus is teaching them is that they can lay down the law because Jesus is laying down the law and what he's teaching is they're going to be redeemed forever from the law Jesus redeemed us from the law because he's saying I am the fulfillment of the law I have not come to destroy the law but rather I'm going to redeem you from the law because I am the fulfillment of the law the law and the prophets now this is really important because just like in the early days of Christianity, there was what was called Judaizers and they would teach that in order to become a Christian, you first have to go through the Jewish rite of circumcision. In essence, you have to become a Jew to become a Christian and guess what? For all that has changed in 2,000 years, there's so much that has stayed exactly the same. There are still people that would teach you that you got to come to Jesus based on what you do, and you got to be accepted by God, not simply on what Jesus did for you, but now it's what Jesus did for you, and now there's a list of things for you to do. And do you understand that's exactly what Jesus is now teaching? I have redeemed you from keeping a list, and now you're going to follow me based simply on love. Do you understand that Christianity is not about a list of things to do? It's built on only on what God has done for you. See, Jesus redeemed us from the law because he is the fulfillment of the law. He said, I'm not come to destroy the law and the prophets. The prophets being the rest of the Old Testament. The prophets that spoke of this coming one, the anointed one that would one day come, God's son. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In other words, I am embodying all the prophecies and Jesus alone in all of history is the one that every prophecy made century after century. Jesus alone fulfilled them perfectly. 
think about this for a moment. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be a Jew, and Jesus was. It was prophesied he'd be of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus was. Of the household of David, and Jesus was. Of the root of Jesse, and Jesus was. Born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was. Betrayed for silver, and Jesus was. Crucified between thieves, and Jesus was. That his garments would be gambled for at the foot of the cross, and Jesus was. Do you understand that over and over again, Jesus fulfilled every single prophecy made about him perfectly and literally. He's the only one ever in all of history. This is how we know that Jesus is the one that was promised would one day come, that he is God's son, but not only that, he's the fulfillment of the law. What does that mean? It means the law pointed to him. He is the completion of it. He didn't come to destroy it, but rather he came to complete it and he came to fulfill it. Think about this for just a moment. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, where you find a lot of the Jewish law, you have the five offerings of the ancient Hebrews. Each of those five offerings were a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross, prophetically picturing what one day a final sacrifice would bring. Every time those Old Testament Jews brought a sacrifice, an offering, it was a picture of Jesus. And I want you to notice the precision. It's providential. It's not coincidental. So if you go to the book of Leviticus, you find first the burnt offering. What was the burnt offering? The burnt offering was where the Old Testament worshiper would bring a lamb and that priest would sacrifice that lamb and that priest was certain that lamb would be a male lamb without spot or blemish because it's a picture of another lamb, John 1, 29. Behold, the lamb of God, Jesus, who would take away the sins of the world and he would sacrifice that lamb and unlike all the other offerings, it would be completely consumed in the fire on the altar, a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross as the Lamb of God completely consumed for us, and he took all the wrath of God for our sin, fulfilling perfectly what was being pictured prophetically in the burnt offering. And after the burnt offering came something called the grain offering, and that Old Testament Jew would bring a sacrifice of grain. It would be unleavened grain, unleavened meal, leavened in the Bible is a picture of sin and they would take this grain and they would bake it into cakes unleavened cakes why because it was a picture of Jesus the bread of life but it wasn't just any kind of bread it was unleavened bread it was a picture of the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 I'm the manna that came down from heaven I am the bread of life on the night before his death he's taken the Passover supper with his disciples he broke the bread what did he say take eat this is my body which is broken for you you see Jesus was our burnt offering he died for our sin but he couldn't have died for our sin unless he had been the sinless bread of life he lived a sinless life the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ and only then did you get to the peace offering notice the peace offering follows the meal offering and the burnt offering why because if you come to Jesus and you receive him as your burnt offering he is completely consumed for your sin because he first was the meal offering as the bread of life he never ever sinned now and only now do you have peace with God Romans 5 and verse 1 having been justified by faith we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ you see on the cross of Calvary he was our peace offering before God because he was our meal offering before God and our burnt offering before God. Do you see what Jesus meant when he said, I haven't come to destroy the law, but rather fulfill the law? He fulfilled it perfectly. All those shadows prophetically pointing to him.
Oh, here's another one, for example. Once a year, by the law of Moses, the high priest of Israel could go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. And only once a year were they allowed behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, that veil that stood for centuries, separating the presence of God from the presence of men. Once a year, the high priest of Israel would go behind the veil into the very presence of God where he would take the blood of a lamb and he would sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the day of atonement on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that was behind the veil. And in so doing, he was atoning for the sins of Israel. And did you know that at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 8, 1 tells us that he is our high priest that came to make atonement for us. And we're told in Matthew 27 that when Jesus died on the cross at that very moment, the veil in the temple that has stood for century, century after century, separating the prince of God from the prince of men, did you know at that very moment that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Because God was now teaching us that Jesus as our high priest has atoned for us. He ascended back into heaven, the third heaven, the dwelling place of God behind the veil into the very presence of God. And it was there as our high priest, he offered the blood, the blood of a lamb, but not just any lamb. It was the blood of a man. And there he atoned for our sins. You see, he is the fulfillment of the prophets and also the law of God. I could go on and on, but this is what Jesus meant. I haven't come to destroy the law. The law is eternal, the laws of God. I've come to fulfill the law, and in fulfilling the law, I'm redeeming you from the law. No longer will you have to try to be accepted by God based on keeping lists. Now it's born out of love. Now listen, in the Old Testament, New Testament, every person who's ever been saved, to use that New Testament term, has been saved by grace alone through faith alone. It's very emphatic in James chapter two, for example, where we talk about faith without works is dead. James was emphatic about this. You take Abraham, the father of the Jews. We're told in Genesis 15 that he believed God and it was imputed or accounted unto him for righteousness. You see, God declares you righteous and sinless, innocent of sin, not based on your righteousness, because you don't have any, John, or Romans chapter three and verse 10, but rather instead your faith in him when you believe in him. But by the time you got to the time of Christ, the Jews had been taught century after century, oh no, it's about keeping the list. It's the list of things to do. It's the things you gotta do for him. And only as you keep the law perfectly do you have any chance of going to heaven eternally. You see, Jesus has come to redeem us from that mentality. And here's why this is important. Listen very carefully. Uh, Matthew 5, 19, Jesus continues here. He says this, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but over dozen teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is trying to do here is lay down the law so that you can lay down the law. He said, I'm redeeming you from the law because unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you have no chance of going to heaven. Now, we know the scribes and Pharisees were anything but righteous, but if you were a first century Jew, you looked at the scribes and Pharisees as like religious perfection. 
they're the ones that I want to somehow ascribe to. I mean, somehow, some way, I want to be like them because they are clearly religious. I mean, they're awesomely holy. I mean, unless my righteousness can exceed them, at this point in the sermon, they're thinking, there's no way I can go to heaven because there's no way I can be as perfect as the scribes and the, the Pharisees. Now, put this in our modern vernacular. Think about the most righteous religious person that you can think of right now. I mean, you can always find somebody you're better than, all right? But you can always find somebody who's better than you. That is why you're not saved by what you do, only what God has done for you. So, I mean, think about, you know, Billy Graham would be an example maybe today in our modern world. You know, Mother Teresa, uh, Jernigan Schwent. No, that's not a great example. Jessica Schwent. Amen? All right? Got this, the angelic voice. You know, I told our church when we sent Jernigan to the world hand started church, yeah, we're going to miss Jernigan, but we're really going to miss Jessica. All right? We're really going to miss Jessica, right? Here's the point. Nobody can live up to sinless perfection. I mean, think of that person you think is the most religious, amazing, godly person, your grandma. Even they had sinned and fallen short of the standard of heaven. Romans 3 and verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. What is Jesus doing here? He's trying to teach us that we cannot enter heaven by keeping a list of things to do. You see, the law in no way could bring our salvation, only condemnation, because it demanded perfection. Think about it. The law could never bring salvation because the law is perfect. The law demands absolute perfection. Did you know that perfection is the standard of heaven? Let me ask you this question. If, if, if heaven is a place of perfection, how many times could you sin before you could no longer go to heaven? How many times could you sin? I'm giving you a hint right now. One sin one time would keep you out of heaven. Because heaven is a place of perfection. If God let sin into heaven, it would no longer be heaven. It would become like the earth, a place of corruption. This is why Jesus had to redeem us from the law because even if you could keep the law so perfectly and stumble even one time in all of your life and all of history, that one time would be enough to keep you out of heaven because heaven is pass fail. It's not like, well, 95%. Listen, I was a solid C student. If I got an 85% on a test when I was in school, like it's an awesome day, great day. You know, if I had a teacher that graded on a curve, you guys know what that is? Do they still do this? I love teachers who graded on a curve, didn't you? Yeah, because they were going to take the class high, even if that was maybe an 85, that becomes the A, that becomes the standard, and then they go down from there. So a guy like me with a 75, now I could get a B. That's awesome. But see, God didn't grade on a curve. What Jesus is teaching here is it's pass-fail. If you try to get to heaven and be pleasing to God based on what you do for God, you cannot stumble one time in your life. Look at what it says in James 2.10, forever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. He's guilty of all. 
You see, in the eyes of God, you're guilty of all, even though you may kept up most of the law, if you stumbled even one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all the law. If you were to take a magic marker, let's say, out here on these plate glass windows on the front of this building, don't do this because it's a lease building, okay? It will get you thrown out. Please don't do that. This is an awesome place for a church to begin. But just theoretically, let's say, you take a, a magic marker on these plate glass windows out front and you draw 10 circles, right? And then you take a mallet and you try to just break one of those circles, just one of the 10. What happens to all the other circles? You break them all. See, God is perfect and the law demands perfection. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach right here. Listen, unless your perfection, unless your righteousness, you know, can be up to the standards of the scribes and Pharisees whom themselves are falling short of actually keeping the law, you have no chance of getting to heaven right now. This first century audience is thinking to themselves, what chance do I have? I mean, I'm not religious enough like the Pharisees. I mean, I know that I'm a sinner. This is the point. God gave you a test knowing you would fail. Think about the Ten Commandments, ten of God's pet peeves, all right? There's over 600 commands, but we have the Ten Commandments that we're at least somewhat familiar with, right? Uh, He's trying to give us a test, not that we could pass, but that we would fail. Trying to teach us that keeping the law cannot bring our salvation because it demands perfection. It can only give us condemnation. Uh, So think about this for a moment in the Ten Commandments. Um, God said, for example... You shall not lie. How many here have ever lied right now? Just be honest. Lie. Some of us are lying. (laughs) How many of us have ever lied? Look around. Who doesn't have their hand up? Do this with them because right now, okay. We've all lied at least one time, yes? Yeah. We broke broke the law, the law of God. Uh, God said, don't cheat. You shall not cheat. How many have cheated one time in your life? Maybe just once. I have. I'll admit it. I cheated on an 11th grade biology exam. I cheated my way to a C. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, yeah, I lied. I cheated. How many of you, let's see, here, here's one. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You have ever cussed. Don't be a cusser. That's what God was saying. Don't cuss. How many have cussed? One time in your life, you let it slip out. I have more than once, probably last week. I'm telling you, this is the one I struggle with to this day. I get frustrated in the flesh in that moment. It slips out. I have to repent real quick. Listen, we've all done it. Um... God said, do not steal. How many have stolen something one time, something even small? Doesn't have to be anything big. I've stolen. I'll never forget, about six years of age, I'm going through the grocery store, mom and dad, and and there's this open bag of bubble gum in the candy aisle. I swear to this day, it was a sting operation. (laughs) I'm six years of age. I mean, for a six-year-old walking through the candy aisle, it's an open bag of bubble gum. Bubble gum is just everywhere. It's screaming, take me, take me. So I did. I start stuffing my pockets full of bubble gum. And it's no fun to send by yourself. So I got my little brother in on it. Hey, Tim, come here. Come here. We're stuffing our pockets full of bubble gum. We get home. We shut the door on our bedroom. We shut it. Obviously, we knew what we did was wrong. 
But we are in our room. We are having a bubblegum party. I mean, it was awesome, blowing the biggest bubbles ever, right? And then my mom comes in and crashes the party. And she asks these words, where did you get that bubblegum? I did the only natural thing. I lied. Mom, it was under the bed. We just found it under the bed. Really, it's a miracle. I don't know where it came from. She didn't buy it. All right, she laid down the law. The law demands justice. She hauls me in the car and my brother in the car and she hauls us back to that grocery store where she gets the manager and we get into our piggy bank and in front of him we confess our sin, we hand him a quarter and we pay for our bubble gum. <laughs> you see, the law demands justice. The law's not about grace. My mama laid down the law. I was under the law and guess what? I had broken almost all of them. Here, here's the point. God's trying to alleviate us of this faulty thinking that I'm a good person, so naturally I go to heaven. Bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven, and I'm basically a good person. No, you're not a good person. Guess what? You've broken the law. We have in this room today, we don't have great people in the eyes of God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 18, no one is good except for God because good is the wrong standard of heaven. Perfection is the standard of heaven. And right now, based on your own testimony, based on on the show of hands in this place, this room, Jernigan, did you know your church is full of liars and cheaters and cussers and stealers? Liars, cheaters, cussers, stealers. Now, aren't you glad Jesus has redeemed you from the law? See, he didn't lower the bar. The bar is sinless perfection. He didn't lower the bar so you could get in. He himself met the bar because you couldn't meet the bar, because you couldn't get to heaven, heaven came down to you and his name was Jesus. And he's laying down the law so that you can lay down the law. Do you understand the moment you start trying to base your relationship to God based on a list of things for you to do, you put yourself back under the law even though you've been saved by grace. And did you know this exactly why the apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians? Galatians 3 and verse 10, read this with me. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now he's writing the Galatians, this first century church of first century Christians, and here's what's going on as he's writing the book of Galatians. There are people teaching that you cannot go to heaven, you cannot be a Christian unless you've gone through the Hebrew rite of circumcision. Can you imagine going to this church to join it and going through new members class? Yeah, uh, in a new members class, here's the conditions of membership in our church, all right? You have to believe in Jesus, and you got to be circumcised. Well, it's good to go. I mean, I've been circumcised. Okay, we need you to prove it. Can you imagine? This was a big deal in the early days. In fact, you've heard of the Jerusalem Council in Acts, I think, is chapter 15, uh, where you have all the heavy hitters. They come back to Jerusalem because there is about to be a church split for the first time in the early days of Christianity over this theology. And they are really wound up, all right? The Apostle Paul has actually won a Greek convert to Christ by the name of Titus. And Titus was tagging along with Paul as he's doing his missionary work and planting these churches. And people really wound up because Titus had never been circumcised. Can you imagine me and Titus? Poor guy. Everywhere he goes, people are whispering about him. He's never been circumcised. 
This is the reason Paul's now writing the book of Galatians. He's saying, look, we've been saved by grace. Don't, don't, don't put anybody that's been saved by the blood of the Son of God and the work of what Jesus did on the cross, don't put them back under the law. We've been redeemed from the law. He's telling the Galatians, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse of the law, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things. Everybody say all. All things. You are cursed. Because just one time, one sin. Stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. He says, which are written in the book of the law to do them. He says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. He's writing to these Galatians, these Judaizers, these people saying, oh no, you're not saved by Christ's work alone. Now you gotta be saved by what Jesus did for you and now what you do for him too. And the first thing on the list is you gotta be circumcised. Now, now we would never think in those terms today, but think about this for a moment. We have a list of things still today, 2,000 years later. My wife was raised in a denomination where she was taught that her baptism is what made her a Christian. And then she was taught, you know, there's a list, then she was taught that, you know, baptism wasn't enough, that's the start, but it's not the end, now you gotta take communion, and only if you take communion are you now receiving God's grace, and you better not stop taking communion, you gotta take it every Sunday, don't miss, don't miss a Sunday. And then there's confirmation, you gotta go through, see, there's this list of things to do. See, we have lists today too. Now, I was raised in a denominational tradition where I wasn't taught baptism was you know, on the list of things to do and that's what gets me into heaven. Communion, that, that, that wasn't on the list. But, but every denomination has a way of distorting salvation, which is justification by faith alone in what Jesus did on the cross. So in my tradition, it was um, you know, you're six years of age and you ask Jesus into your heart. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but asking Jesus into your heart is nowhere in the Bible. That's not what makes you a Christian. I'm not saying you didn't become a Christian if you asked Jesus into your heart. I'm saying if you became a Christian, it's not because you asked Jesus into your heart. That, that's not in the Bible, but that was on a lot of people's lists that asked Jesus into your heart. And I want you to see that Christ has redeemed us from keeping a list of things to do to be pleasing to God. It's now built only on what Christ has done for you. The law was a shadow of our salvation while Jesus is the substance of our salvation. And so many people put their faith in the shadows instead of putting their faith in the substance, putting their faith in the source. Jesus is the substance, but the law was simply the shadow. In the same way today that baptism is not the source of our salvation, it's a shadow of the salvation, but not the substance of our salvation. Baptism, what happens? When you are put underneath the water, that's a picture of the death of Christ, and that you are dying with Christ, and as you come up out of the water, that is a picture that you have now been resurrected with Christ to live a brand new life in Christ. Now listen carefully, that is not what makes you a Christian, that's simply a shadow that points to the fact that you are a Christian. See, baptism, I tell people, it's kind of like 
a wedding ring. Listen, I have a wedding ring on. I've worn it now for 30 years. In fact, I don't know if I could even get it off if I wanted to. I mean, it's on there good, baby. But I want you to know something. If I could get this ring off, if I did take this ring off, would it make me no longer married? No, this ring, I was at a wedding last night, Jernigan performed, did a phenomenal job helping this couple take their vows and join their union before God and they exchange rings. We always do that at a wedding, but check this out. You could still get married and never exchange the rings. You know why? Because the ring is nothing more than a symbol. It's a shadow. Yeah, well, Phil, why do you wear your ring? Well, because if I did get it off and I left it off, my wife would beat me. (laughs) And I would have no outward symbol that I'm married. See, it's not that baptism is inconsequential. Baptism is essential to your growth as a Christian. Baptism is simply not the foundation that makes you a Christian. It's the same with communion, taking the Lord's Supper. These are shadows of our salvation, but they're not the the substance of our salvation. This is why the book of Hebrews was written. Uh, It's written to those early Hebrews, now following Jesus, to illustrate how the blood of bulls and goats could not be the source of our salvation. The blood of bulls and goats and those Old Testament sacrifices and the offerings that I mentioned, the burnt offering, the peace offering. Of the trespass offering, the sin offering. These are not the source of our salvation. They were merely the shadows of our salvation. Baptism, communion, and any other thing you do, it may be a shadow, but it is not the source. Jesus is redeeming us from having to keep the list. And this is how Paul puts it to the Galatians, and this is how Jesus would put it today to many in our day. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, but this is a trend. There's a new trend. I've been at this 20 years now, and I've lived long enough and preached long enough and been a part of the church movement long enough to see trends kind of come and go. Here's what is trending right now. The same thing that was trending in Galatia. In fact, we just had a member of our staff leave. Resign. Why? Because he'd been listening to a false teacher that convinced him that you have to keep the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is Saturday. It's not Sunday. I mean, the Sabbath is Saturday, and and we shouldn't be going to church on Sunday. We should be going to church on Saturday. And here's what I asked him. Really? So when you go to church on Saturday, are you also going to bring a lamb in one arm and a knife in the other one? Because if you're going to keep part of the law, you got to prepare to keep all the law. See, it's not cut and paste. It's all the law or none of the law. And here's what's trending is this trend back to Judaism and Judaism and, and you got to become a Jew in order to become a, a Christian. Well, I, you know, I hear people say, well, well, I don't know why we celebrate Christmas. What about the feasts of Israel? Jesus kept the feast. Yeah, because he was born under the law as a Jew. If you want to keep the feasts of Israel as a shadow, as a symbol, I think that's awesome. I've been, you know, through a Passover Seder of my own and it was an amazing, beautiful shadow of our salvation. But to teach that you should or you have to to be a Christian, that is heresy. 
That was a shadow of our salvation, but not the substance of our salvation. I'm talking about the seven feasts of ancient Israel. Jesus didn't come to destroy them, but rather to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of all seven feasts of ancient Israel, beginning with the Passover supper. Remember what they would do with the Passover. It's instituted in Exodus chapter 12. On the night before God would redeem Israel from Egyptian tyranny and slavery. It was a picture of you and me and what God would do for us personally. He told those Jews to take a lamb, a male lamb, without spot or blemish, because it's a picture, a shadow of another lamb that would be male, without spot or blemish. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to put it on the doorposts of their home, not just anywhere, but here, here, here and here, a shadow of the cross. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul would say, Christ is our Passover. And it's not coincidental, it is entirely providential that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was nailed to a cross on the day of Passover as thousands of other lambs in the Jewish temple were being sacrificed that day. The Lamb of God was being sacrificed on that very day. My friends, that is not accidental. That is providential. Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the Passover, our Passover lamb. But I want you to see, the Passover feast is merely a shadow. Jesus alone is the substance. And for those today that would say, oh no, you got to keep a list, and the lists always change from generation to generation, denomination to denomination, the list always change, but there are people today that would continue to say, oh no, you can't go to heaven based only on what Jesus did for you. Now you got to keep this list of things now that you do for him too. This is what Paul would say. This is what our God would say, Galatians 3.1, oh foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Christian, who has bewitched you or deceived you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? How foolish. When Jesus laid down the law so that we can lay down the law, that we would go and pick back up the law? Are we crazy? Friends, that's heresy. That's heresy. And it's alive and well today, even today in the 21st century. The very thing the apostles were battling in the first century. It is alive and well today in the modern church, in this late hour of church history. And the message is still the same. Galatians 5.1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. You understand that lists is built on religion. But Jesus didn't come to give us more religion. He came to give us something better called redemption. Redemption is built solely on what Jesus has done for you. Religion is built now on what you have to do too. Don't go back under a religious system of legalism and keeping a list of things to do. You're now accepted perfectly and wholly and completely by the God of eternity based solely on what Jesus did for you when he poured out his blood at Calvary. He overcame all of sin's penalty. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty 
wherewith Christ has made you free and do not be entangled again in that yoke of bondage. This is Independence Day. You talk about appropriate day to preach this message, Jernigan. On the day we celebrate our independence as a nation, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is declaring Independence Day from religion, Independence Day from keeping a list of things to do, legalism, Independence Day from keeping the law, knowing the law could only bring condemnation. It could never bring our salvation. I'll end with this. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. As you can see, the New Testament is full of this teaching that Jesus began in the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 7 verse 1, the Apostle Paul uses a parable to illustrate now our new relationship with Jesus as the bride of Christ. He says this, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman has a husband who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. This is a parable. Paul's not writing a doctrinal thesis here on divorce and remarriage. He's using marriage as a picture of our relationship now with Jesus Christ. Check this out. Before Christ, you were in a bad marriage because you were married to the perfect man. Ladies, you think you'd love to be married to the perfect man, but you really wouldn't want to be. Because if you're married to a perfect man, and he really is perfect, he has the right to demand perfection. Be glad you're married to the man you're married to, amen? Yeah. He's saying, before Christ, you were in a bad marriage because you were married to the perfect man, and that man was the law. Now, it's not that the law is wrong. We're wrong. The law is perfect because the law is of God. The law is a thing of perfection. And because it's a thing of perfection, it had the right to demand perfection. Imagine being married to a man that you could never please. No matter what you did, it would never, ever be enough. There was once a lady that wanted to please her husband so badly, but he was kind of a perfectionist, and she wanted to make his breakfast just perfectly, and, and he, she knew that my, my man loves eggs in the morning, and his perfect breakfast always includes one scrambled egg and always includes one fried egg, and, and he does it so perfectly, and she, she, she wants to do it so perfectly and please her husband, and, and she does it again, and she, she makes the bacon, and our, oh, by the way, bacon, aren't you glad we've been redeemed from the law? <laughs> Acts chapter 10, right? All the dietary laws. Peter has this vision. Guess what he sees coming out of heaven? Bacon! Bacon makes everything taste better, aren't you glad? Well, I can eat my weight in shrimp. I'm so glad we've been redeemed from the law, okay? All right. But I want you, here's this little lady, she's, she's trying to make breakfast perfectly. She fries one egg, scrambles one egg. Her husband comes down and says, I can't believe you did it again. You fried the wrong egg. Imagine being married to a man like that. You were before Christ. 
Now here's the problem. What Paul says, you can't be free to marry another while your husband lives or you're an adulteress. The problem is the law never dies. The the law is eternal. How will you ever be set free from this bad marriage to marry another if your husband lives forever? We're talking about the law. Yes, in this parable, you're the woman. Sorry, Tim, you're the woman. You know why? Because you were made to be the bride of Christ. So if the law doesn't die, then who has to die? You die. And when you die, now you're free to marry Mr. Wright, whose name is Jesus. And this is why the Apostle Paul would write to the Galatians in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. Die to the list. Die to anything you do, hoping to somehow please God by what you do. God is pleased in you only because of what Christ has done for you. And that's why Paul would say to the Galatians who were trying to please God, through circumcision, today is the day to die. I'm crucified with Christ. The paradox is that I still live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by lists. Oh no, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As they say, freedom is never free. It was our founding father, Patrick Henry, who said, give me freedom or give me death. Give me liberty or give me death. And our founding fathers and many other revolutionaries indeed chose to die so that others might live. And liberty was purchased through the blood of many. But check this out. With this kingdom manifesto, you die to live. Give me liberty or give me death. And only through your death, your co-crucifixion with Christ, do you start to live in the liberty and the power and the joy what Jesus called life abundantly. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.